0: Chapter Twelve, Part One of Nana by Amisola, translated by Burton RASCO This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Twelve, Part One. It was nearly one o'clock in the morning, and Nana and the Count in the big bed hung with Venetian lace were not yet asleep. He had returned that evening after sulking for three days. The room, which was only feebly lighted by a lamp, was wrapped in silence and felt warm and moist with an odor of love whilst the white lacquer furniture inlaid with silver was only vaguely visible. A drawn curtain half hid the bed in a flood of shadow. There was a sigh, and then the sound of a kiss broke the silence, and Nana, gliding from under the clothes, remained seated for an instant on the edge of the bed with her legs bare. The Count, his head fallen back on the pillow, continued in the shadow. "'Darling, do you believe in God?' she asked after a moment of reflection with a grave look on her face, and filled with a religious terror on leaving her lover's arms. Ever since the morning she had complained of an uneasiness, and all her stupid ideas, as she called them, ideas of death and hell, had been secretly tormenting her. On some nights childish frights and the most horrible fancies seized upon her with her eyes open. She resumed, Do you think I shall go to heaven? And she shivered, Whilst the Count, surprised at these singular questions at such a time, felt all his religious remorse awakened within him. But with her nightdress slipped from her shoulders, her hair hanging loose about her, she fell upon his chest sobbing and clinging to him. I'm afraid to die. I'm afraid to die. He had all the difficulty in the world to get free from her, He himself was afraid of succumbing to the attack of madness from which that woman, pressed to his body in the contagious fear of the invisible, was suffering, and he reasoned with her. She was in very good health. All she had to do was to conduct herself well, to merit pardon hereafter. But she shook her head. No doubt she never did harm to anyone. She even always wore a medal of the Virgin, which she showed him hanging to a red ribbon between her breasts. Only it was settled beforehand all women who without being married had anything to do with men went to hell. Fragments of her catechism were returning to her. Ah, if one only knew for certain. But there, one knew nothing, no one ever returned with news, and really it would be stupid to put oneself out if the priests were only talking nonsense. Yet she devoutly kissed her medal, which was all warm from its contact with her body, as a conjuration against death the thought of which filled her with a icy terror. Mifa had to go with her into the dressing-room. She trembled at being alone for a minute, even with the door open. When he had got into bed again, she wandered about the room, looking into all the corners and starting at the least sound. As she came to a mirror, she stopped before it as in the old days, lost in the contemplation of her nudity. But the sight only increased her fear. She ended by leisurely feeling the bones of her face with both her hands, "'How ugly one looks when one's dead!' said she slowly. And she drew in her cheeks, opened wide her eyes, and dropped her jaw to see how she would look. Then, with her features thus distorted, she turned to the count and said, "'Just look! My head will be so small!' Then he grew angry. "'You are mad! Come to bed!' He could picture her in a grave, with the emaciation of a century, and joining his hands he muttered a prayer, For some time past, religion had regained possession of him. His attacks of faith every day had the violence of apoplectic fits, and left him without the least strength. His fingers snapped, and he continually repeated these words, My God! My God! My God! It was the cry of his impotence, the cry of his sin, against which he was powerless to resist, in spite of the certainty of his damnation. When Nana returned to the bed, she found him lying under the clothes with a haggard look on his face, his nails digging into his chest and his eyes gazing upwards as though seeking for heaven. And she burst out crying again. They embraced each other, their teeth chattering without their knowing it, both being oppressed by the same absurd nightmare. They had once before passed a similar night, only this time they were utterly idiotic, as Nana herself declared when she had got over her fright. A suspicion caused her to skilfully question the Count. Perhaps Rose Mignon had sent the famous letter. But it wasn't that, it was merely his nerves, nothing more, for he was still without proofs of his cuckledom. Two days later, after a fresh disappearance, Miffa called one morning at a time which he had never come before. He was livid, his eyes were red with weeping, and his whole frame was still shaking from a great internal struggle. But Zoe, herself utterly scared, did not notice his agitation. She ran to meet him and cried, ''Oh, sir, be quick. Madame very nearly died last night.'' And as he asked for particulars, she added, ''Oh, something incredible, sir. A miscarriage.'' Nana was three months enceinte. For a long time she had thought she was merely unwell. Dr. Boutarel himself had doubts. Then, when he was able to say for certain, she was so vexed that she did everything she could to hide her condition. It seemed to her a most ridiculous mishap, something which lowered her in her own estimation, and about which everyone would have chaffed her. What a wretched joke! She had no luck, really. It was just her misfortune to be caught when she thought she was quite safe. And she experienced a constant surprise, as though disturbed in her sex. What, One got children even when one did not want them and had another object in view? Nature exasperated her. That grave maternity which rose in the midst of her pleasures, that new life quickening when she was sowing so many deaths around her. Ought not one to be able to dispose of oneself as one liked without all that fuss? Now who did the brat spring from? She could not for the soul of her tell. No one had asked for it. It was in everybody's way and it would not meet with much happiness in life, that was quite certain. Zoe gave the story of the catastrophe. Madame was seized with colics towards four o'clock. When I went into the dressing-room, not having seen her for some time, I found her lying on the ground in a swoon. Yes, sir, on the ground, in a pool of blood, as though she had been murdered. Then you know I understood what had happened. I was furious. Madame ought to have told me of her mishap. "'Monsieur Georges happened to be here. "'He helped me to raise her, "'but when I told him she had had a miscarriage "'he became unwell also. "'Really, I've been in an awful stew ever since yesterday.' "'And indeed the house seemed topsy-turvy. "'All the servants were continually running about the rooms "'and up and down the stairs. "'Georges had passed the night on a chair in the drawing-room. "'It was he who had told the news to madame's friends "'who had called in the evening at the time "'when madame usually received.' He was very pale and he related this story full of astonishment and emotion. Steiner, Faloise, Philippe, and several others had called. At his first words they uttered exclamations. It could not be. It must be a joke. Then they became very serious. They glanced at the bedroom door, looking very much put out, shaking their heads, no longer thinking it a funny matter. Up to midnight a dozen gentlemen had conversed in undertones in front of the fireplace, all of them friends, and each one wondering if he were the father. They seemed to be apologizing to one another with the confused looks of awkward people. Then they assumed their airs again. It was nothing to do with them. It was her fault entirely. She was a scorcher, that Nana. One would never have expected such a joke from her and they went off one by one on tiptoe, the same as in the chamber of death, where one must never laugh. "'But you had better go up all the same, sir,' said Zoe to Mufa. "'Madame is much better. She will see you. We are expecting the doctor, who promised to call again this morning.' The maid had persuaded Georges to go home to obtain some sleep. Upstairs in the drawing-room, there was only Satin reclining on a sofa, smoking a cigarette, and gazing at the ceiling. Since the accident, in the midst of the distraction of the household, she had displayed a cold rage, shrugging her shoulders and saying most ferocious things. So, as Zoe passed before her, telling Mipha that her mistress's sufferings had been very great, "'It serves her right. It will be a lesson for her,' she sharply exclaimed. They turned around in surprise. Satin had not moved. Her eyes were still fixed on the ceiling. Her cigarette was held nervously between her lips.' "'Well, you haven't much feeling you haven't,' said Zoe. "'But Satin, sitting up on the couch, looked furiously at the Count "'and flung her former words in his face. "'It serves her right. It will be a lesson for her.' "'And she laid herself down again, slowly puffing the smoke from her mouth, "'as though uninterested and determined not to mix herself up in anything. "'No, it was too absurd.' "'Zoe ushered the Count into the bedroom.' A smell of ether hung about in the midst of a lukewarm silence which the rare vehicles of the Avenue de Villiers scarcely broke with a dull rumbling sound. Nana, looking very white on the pillow, was not asleep. Her eyes were wide open and thoughtful. She smiled, without moving, on catching sight of the Count. "'Ah, Ducky!' murmured she slowly. "'I thought I should never see you again.' Then, when he bent forward to kiss her on her hair, she was moved and spoke to him of the child in good faith, as though he had been the father. "'I did not dare to tell you. I felt so happy. Oh, I had all sorts of dreams. I wanted it to be worthy of you. And now it's all over. Well, perhaps it's best so. I don't want to saddle you with any encumbrance.' He, surprised at that paternity, stammered out a few sentences. He had taken a chair and seated himself beside the bed, one arm lying on the clothes. Then the young woman noticed his agitated countenance, his bloodshot eyes, the feverish trembling of his lips. "'What's the matter with you?' asked she. "'Are you ill also?' "'No,' he answered painfully. She gave him a penetrating look. Then with a sign she sent off Zoe, who was arranging the bottles of medicine as an excuse for remaining in the room— and when they were alone she drew him towards her, saying, "'What's the matter, darling? "'Your eyes are full of tears. "'I can see them. "'Come, speak. "'You have called to tell me something.' "'No, no, I swear to you,' he stammered. "'But, choking with suffering, "'affected all the more by that sick room "'in which he so unexpectedly found himself, "'he burst into sobs. "'He buried his face in the sheets "'to stifle the explosion of his anguish.' Nana understood. Rose had no doubt ended by sending the letter. She let him cry awhile. The convulsions that had seized him were so violent that they shook her in the bed. At length, with an accent of maternal compassion, she asked, You have some worry at home? He nodded his head. She paused again, then added very low. So you know all? He nodded his head a second time and silence again reigned, an oppressive silence in that room of pain. It was the night before, on returning from a party at the Empress's, that he had received the letter written by Sabine to her lover. After a frightful night, passed in dreaming of vengeance, he had gone out early in the morning to withstand a temptation to kill his wife. Outside, in the open air, struck by the mildness of the beautiful June morning, He had been unable to collect his scattered ideas, and had come to Nana's, as he always came when in trouble. There only would he abandon himself to his misery with the cowardly joy of being consoled. Come, be calm, resumed the young woman affectionately. I have known it for a long while, but I would never have opened your eyes. You recollect last year you had suspicions. Then, thanks to my prudence, things got all right again. In short, you had no proofs. Well, today, if you have any, it's certainly hard, as I can understand. Yet you must be reasonable. One's not dishonored because of that. He no longer wept. Shame had possession of him, though he had for a long time past talked with her about the most intimate details of his married life. She had to encourage him. Come, she was a woman. She could hear everything. But he muttered in a hollow voice, You're ill. I mustn't tire you. It was stupid of me to come. I am going. But no, said she quickly. Stay. I may be able to give you some good advice. Only don't make me talk too much. The doctor has forbidden me to do so. He had left his seat and was walking about the room. Then she questioned him. What will you do now? I will thrash the man, of course. She pouted disapprovingly. That's not a very smart thing to do. And your wife? I shall sue for a separation. I have a proof. My dear fellow, that's not smart at all. It's even absurd. You know I'll never let you do anything of the kind. And sedately in her feeble voice, she pointed out to him the useless scandal of a duel and a lawsuit. For a week he would be the chief topic in all the papers. He would be playing with his entire existence, his peace of mind his high position at court, the honor of his name. And why? To be laughed at. What does it matter? cried he. I shall be avenged. Ducky, said she. When a man doesn't avenge himself at once in such matters, he doesn't avenge himself at all. The words he was about to utter died away on his lips. He was certainly no coward, but he felt that she was right. An uneasiness increased within him, "'Something like a feeling of impoverishment and shamefulness "'had unmanned him in the outburst of his wrath. "'Besides, she hit him another blow with a frankness that decided on telling all. "'And would you like to know what it is that bothers you, darling? "'It is that you yourself deceive your wife. Eh? you don't stop out all night to say your prayers. "'Your wife must know the true reason. "'Then with what can you reproach her?' She will say that you gave her the example and that will shut you up. There, darling, that's why you're here stamping about instead of being there murdering them both. Mufa had fallen into a chair overwhelmed by that brutality of language. She remained silent a while, regaining breath. Then she faltered in a very low voice. Oh, I'm sore all over. Help me to raise myself a little. I keep slipping down, my head is too low. When he had assisted her, she sighed and felt better, and she returned to the grand site of a trial for judicial separation. Could he not conceive the Countess's counsel amusing all Paris and talking of Nana? Everything would be related. Her fiasco at the Variety Theater, her mansion, her life. Ah, no, she did not care for such an advertisement. Some dirty woman might have urged him to be so foolish so as to gain notoriety at his expense, but she desired his happiness before everything. She had drawn him towards her. She held him now with his head on the pillow beside her own and her arm around his neck, and she whispered gently, Listen, Ducky, you must make it up with your wife. He was indignant. Never. His heart was breaking. The shame was too great. She, however, tenderly insisted. You must make it up with your wife. Come, you don't want to hear everyone say that I estranged you from your family. It would give me too bad a reputation. What would everyone think of me? Only swear that you'll always love me. For now that you're going to be another's... Her sobs were choking her. He interrupted her with kisses, saying, You are mad. It is impossible. Yes, yes, resumed she. You must do it. It's only right. And, after all, she's your wife. It's not as though you were unfaithful to me with the first woman you came across. And she continued thus giving him the best advice. She even talked of God. He seemed to be listening to Monsieur Venot when the old man used to sermonize him to save him from sin. She, however, did not talk of breaking off. She preached complacency, The sharing of him by his wife and his mistress, a quiet life without any bother for anyone, something like a happy dozing through the inevitable nastiness of life. It would change nothing in their existence. He would still be her best-loved ducky, only he would not come quite so frequently, and would devote to the countess the days he did not spend with her. Her strength was failing her. She concluded in a whisper, "'That way, I shall know that I have performed a good action.' "'You will love me all the more.' "'Then there was silence. "'She closed her eyes, looking paler still on the pillow. "'He had listened to her under the pretext of not wishing to tire her. "'At the end of a few minutes she reopened her eyes and murmured, "'And money, too. "'Where will you get money if you quarrel? "'La Bordette came yesterday about the bill. "'I'm in want of everything. "'I've not a thing left to put on.' Then, closing her eyes again, she appeared as though dead. A shade of intense anguish overspread Mifa's face. In the blow that had come upon him he had forgotten, ever since the night before, the monetary difficulties from which he no longer knew how to extricate himself. In spite of the most distinct promises, his note for a hundred thousand francs, already renewed once, had been put into circulation. And La Bordette, affecting to be greatly vexed, made out it was all Francis's fault, and said that he would never again compromise himself in an affair with an uneducated man. It would have to be paid. The Count would never let his note be protested. Then, besides Nana's innumerable claims, there was a most wasteful expenditure going on in his own home. On their return from La Fondette, the Countess had suddenly developed a taste for luxury— an appetite for worldly enjoyments which were rapidly devouring their fortune. People were beginning to talk of her ruinous caprices, a complete change of her household. Five hundred thousand francs frittered away in transforming the old house in the Rue miro and extravagant costumes, and large sums of money that had disappeared, melted, or been given away, perhaps, without her troubling herself to render the least account. Twice Mufa had ventured to make some observations, being desirous of knowing— But she had looked at him so peculiarly, smiling the while, that he did not dare to ask any questions for fear of receiving too plain an answer. If he accepted Deguenay as a son-in-law from Nana, it was especially with the idea of being able to reduce Estelle's dowry to two hundred thousand francs, and of making arrangements respecting the balance with the young man who would be only too delighted at such an unexpectedly good marriage. However, during the last week, in view of the necessity of immediately finding the hundred thousand francs for the bill, Muffat had only been able to think of one expedient from which he recoiled. It was to sell a magnificent estate called Les Bordes, estimated at half a million, and which the countess had recently inherited from an uncle. Only he needed her assent, and she also by her marriage contract could not dispose of it without his. The night before he had made up his mind to ask his wife for her consent. But now his plans were all upset, he could never accept such a compromise knowing what he did. This thought made the blow he had received all the harder. He understood what it was that Nana wished, for in the increasing constraint that prompted him to confide in her regarding everything, he had complained about the difficulty he was in, he had told her how anxious he was to get the Countess's consent. However, Nana did not appear to insist. She did not reopen her eyes. Seeing her so pale, he was frightened and induced her to take a little ether. Then she sighed and questioned him, but without naming Dagonet. "'When is the marriage coming off?' "'The contract is to be signed on Tuesday in five days from now,' he replied. Then, with her eyes still closed, as though she was speaking in the night of her thoughts, she added, "'Well, Ducky, think what you had better do. For myself, I want everyone to be pleased.' he pacified her by taking her hand. Yes, he would think about it. The main thing was for her to rest. And his indignation left him. That sick room, so warm and so still, smelling strongly of ether, had ended by lulling him in a blessed peacefulness. All his manliness aroused by the injury had disappeared on his contact with the warmth of that bed, beside that suffering woman whom he nursed, under the excitement of his fever, and with the recollection of their voluptuous pleasures. He leant over her, he held her in his embrace. Though her face did not move, on her lips hovered the keen smile of victory. At that moment, Dr. Boutarel entered the room. "'Well, and how is this dear child?' said he familiarly to Mufa, whom he treated as the husband. "'The deuce! She has been talking!' The doctor was a handsome man, still young, and had a superb connection in the world of gallantry." Very gay, always laughing like a comrade with the ladies, but never departing from his professional position, he charged monstrous fees, which invariably had to be paid with great punctuality. He would trouble himself to call for the least thing. Nana often sent for him two or three times a week, always trembling at the thought of death, and anxiously telling him of every little ache and pain, which he cured whilst amusing her with gossip and funny stories. All the women adored him. But this time the complaint was serious. Mufa withdrew, deeply affected. He had no other feeling but that of compassion at seeing his poor nana so weak. As he was leaving the room, she beckoned him back and offered her forehead to be kissed. Then, in a low voice with a playfully menacing air, she whispered, "'You know what I told you you might do. Make it up with your wife, or I shall be angry.' Countess Sabine had wished her daughter's marriage contract to be signed on a Tuesday to inaugurate the restoration of her townhouse, the paintings of which were scarcely dry, by a grand party. Five hundred invitations had been sent out, a few in all the different sets. On the morning itself, the upholsterers were still putting up some of the hangings, and at the time of lighting the chandeliers towards nine o'clock, the architect accompanied by the Countess who was enraptured was giving his final instructions it was one of those charming spring parties. The warm June evening had enabled the two doors of the drawing-room to be thrown wide open, and the ball to be carried even on the gravelled paths of the garden. When the first guests arrived they were fairly dazzled as the count and countess greeted them at the door. It was difficult to recall the room of bygone days in which lingered the icy recollection of old Countess Mufa. That antique apartment full of devout severity, with its solid mahogany furniture in the style of the empire, its yellow velvet hangings, its greenish ceilings saturated with dampness. Now, in the entrance vestibule, mosaics set off with gold shone beneath the tall candelabra, whilst the marble staircase unrolled its finely chiseled balustrade. Then the drawing-room was resplendent with Genoa velvet hangings and a ceiling embellished with a vast painting by Boucher, which the architect had purchased for one hundred thousand francs at the sale of the Château of Dampierre. The crystal chandeliers and the candelabra illuminated a profusion of mirrors and costly furniture. One could have said that Sabine's easy chair, that solitary seat covered with crimson silk, and the softness of which used to seem so much out of place, had extended and multiplied until it filled the entire house with a voluptuous indolence, a keen enjoyment which burned with all the intensity of latent fires. The dancing had commenced. The orchestra, placed in the garden in front of one of the open windows, was playing a waltz, the sprightly rhythm of which arrived softened and subdued from the open air. And the garden spread itself out in a transparent shadow, lighted up by Venetian lanterns, with a purple tent for refreshments erected at the edge of the lawn. This waltz, the saucy waltz of the blonde Venus, which resembled the laugh raised by some over-free piece of buffoonery, penetrated the old house with a sonorous swell, warming the walls with its tremor. It seemed like some breath of the flesh coming from the street, sweeping before it the whole of a defunct age in the haughty abode, carrying away the past of the Mifas, centuries of honor and of faith slumbering beneath the ceilings. Close to the fireplace, however, the old friends of the count's mother had taken refuge in their accustomed seats, feeling dazed and out of their element. They formed a little group in the midst of the gradually increasing crowd. Madame Du Joncroix, no longer recognizing the place, had at first gone into the dining-room. Madame Chantereau looked with amazement at the garden, which seemed to her immense. Soon all sorts of bitter reflections were whispered in this corner. End of Chapter 12, Part 1.